All right, we're going, continuing with our series on Revelation. This is week number 45. Um, the title of this message is Gathering with Gog and Magog. So just a, a quick warning. There's a lot in here. There's a lot of history and there's a lot of theology. So you might have to really focus uh, on the first portions of this sermon. So if you're one of those who struggles with paying attention, find somebody and ask them, slap me in the face if I fall asleep. So do that right now. Reach over and say, slap me in the face. <laughs> so although as children of God, of course, we cherish the precious promises of Jesus. But do you ever feel drawn towards promises of the world? So me as your pastor, I personally struggle with this. But here's the problem with the world's promises. They always come with a caveat, which is you have to stray from God's people to enjoy the world's promises. <clears throat> it seems the world is constantly beckoning us with enticing offers, just like Satan tried to do with Jesus in the wilderness. But those promises usually require us to spend more time gathering with the world than gathering with God's people. It's why followers of Jesus, all of us, struggle sometimes with wandering away from the flock, scared that maybe we're missing out on something in this life, and we become lured away into gathering with the world. So what we try to do often is we try to split the difference, right? How can we gather with the world and gather with God's people? Maybe we can figure out a way, you know, even though no one else in human history has been able to do this, maybe we are special, we can figure out a way to get the best of both. My personal experience informs me this time splitting has never gone very well for me. And it won't end well in the future either. By the way, this is nearing the end of this seventh cycle that goes over the history of redemption. Revelation chapter 21 starts the really fun stuff, and I know we can't wait, but we're going to finish the seventh cycle this week and next week. This is our passage, starting in verse 7. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. That phrase should sound kind of familiar to you, this number like the sands of the sea. We'll go over that later. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints, that's us, and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Historically speaking, we have a lot of questions to answer. The first one is, who is Gog and Magog? So once again, Revelation has this cyclical nature, which offers another fresh perspective, another camera angle, if you will, on this battle of Armageddon. We've seen seven different views of it. This is the seventh. So John has this vision of Satan gathering the nations from all the four corners of the earth. And he refers to them, these nations he's gathered, as Gog and Magog. Gog and Magog, by the way, is another very contentious topic in the subject of eschatology and end times. But who is Gog and Magog? Are they code names for nations on today's map in the world? 
Some very sincere followers of Jesus try to connect them with modern nations like Russia from the north or China from the east. But as with the rest of Revelation, symbolism all through the book has to have a proper interpretation. And the only way that you can properly interpret Revelation is have a thorough understanding of how first century Jewish Christians would read these names and see them and what would their thoughts be. We like to look at them and try to look at our headlines. Always ends up in flawed interpretation. Look at it the way first century Jews would because frankly, listen, this book was not written to them but to be irrelevant. Now listen, I'm going to write to you all this stuff, but it's not going to happen for 2,000 years, so ignore most of it. <laughs> That's not why the book was written. The book was written to first century Jewish Christians who were undergoing tremendous tribulation and persecution, and they needed to be blessed, they needed to be encouraged, they needed to be inspired. So for John's readers, Gog and Magog, fascinating, these would, for them, these Jewish Christians would be very, very clear markers pointing them back to a fascinating journey throughout the Old Testament. I'm going to take you on that same journey that a first century Jewish Christian would go on, and it will reveal to you who Gog and Magog are. They end up being descendants of Noah and Jacob, who was later named Israel. All right, the first stop on our journey is this future battle. It's in the book of Ezekiel. This was written four years into the Babylonian captivity of Israel. It's critical to understand that this was written while Israel was in captivity. In chapters 38 and 39 of Ezekiel, he prophesies of an ultimate destruction when all the nations come against God and his people. In Ezekiel 38, verses 1 through 4, I've just taken some snippets of this. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, set your face toward Gog, the land of Magog, and prophesy against him. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against you, O Gog, chief prince of Meshes and Tubal. I will turn you about and put hooks into your jaws. Well, that sounds lovely. And listen, it goes on and on for two chapters. It's very graphic. It's much like what we have seen in Revelation describing the Battle of Armageddon. In this prophecy, Gog of the land of Magog brings his armies, all of them, against God's people. And he, as a result of this action, is utterly destroyed. Now, interestingly, there's no historical record of a battle between Israel and Gog. So what does that tell you? It tells you that Ezekiel's prophecy is of a future battle yet to come. The second stop on our journey of this Gog and Magog discovery would be the descendants of Reuben. This is in 1 Chronicles chapter 5, verse 4. It's very short and small, but there's a lot packed in here. The sons of Joel, Shimeah, his son, Gog, his son. So we're going back in time as we go through. The name Gog would point John's readers to this passage, revealing Gog was a son of this man named Joel, who was a descendant of Reuben. Who is Reuben? Reuben was one of Jacob, later named Israel's 12 sons. And Reuben decided to leave his family, settling east of the Jordan, to get to a place where he could create a cattle industry. He wanted to become a cow tycoon. And he couldn't do that living with his family. His descendants became very wealthy and very powerful, but in doing so, because they moved away, they drifted from their spiritual heritage, and they began to gather with the world. And Ezekiel's prophecy is about the destruction 
of Reuben's descendants. When they one day would come against Israel, isn't that a sad story? But it's about a battle that hasn't come yet. So that's the second stop on our journey. The third stop John's Jewish first century Christian readers would go to is Noah's grandson. This is the third stop on their journey. It takes them way back to Genesis. And we'll see more, by the way, in Genesis as we go to Revelation chapter 21 and chapter 22. You'll be stunned and be amazed. So Genesis 10 is known in theological circles as the table of nations. In other words, it is an outline of the origin of all the nations of the world as they came from Noah's sons after the flood. Of the three sons that Noah had, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Shem was actually born the middle son, but for whatever reason, and God does this all throughout the Old Testament, by the way, he doesn't pick the firstborn to be the line of Christ. He always picks the second. And he picked Shem to be the line of Jesus. Ham, the other brother, was cursed because of some serious Jerry Springer-level family dysfunction. (laughs) You can read about it if you want to. I'm not going into it today. He actually took his descendants and he settled to the south, becoming the nation of Egypt and Cush and Canaan and, and all these other ones. And Japheth was Noah's actual firstborn, but no doubt... He felt pretty slighted that his birthright as the firstborn was given to Shem. Why would he, the true firstborn, want to play second fiddle to Shem in the land of Israel? Well, he wouldn't. So he himself came up with greater plans. He wanted a kingdom of his own. He took his family and settled to the east of the Jordan, becoming isolated from Shem's descendants. He too abandoned his family to establish his own legacy, his own nation, his own kingdom on his terms. That's the third stop. And the fourth stop, as I think is the most fascinating, is right in the next chapter, the story of the Tower of Babel. You're going to love this if you're a theology geek. So tucked away in Genesis 10 is a little fascinating nugget. There's this connection. One of Ham and Japheth's descendants is named Nimrod. Nimrod was considered a mighty warrior. He had ambitions not just to have his own kingdom. He wanted to control all the kingdoms for himself. He wanted to be the first world leader. And Nimrod's legacy actually becomes the empire of Babel, which is the Hebrew word for Babylon. Are you starting to connect the dots here? This brings us to Genesis chapter 11 in the story of the Tower of Babel. Many of you may know it. After Nimrod's descendants had conquered all the nations, they gathered them all together on a plane, and they wanted Nimrod and his descendants, they wanted to immortalize their legacy by building a great tower or a monument. They didn't know it at the time, but what they were actually doing, they were building an evil counterfeit to the kingdom of God. They were doing Satan's bidding, but as we know in the story, God intervened and said, nah, I don't think so gives them all different languages, they separate, and now this big gathering of nations at the Tower of Babel was dispersed. So that's the history. Pretty cool stuff, right? That's where John's first century Jewish Christian leaders would go. They wouldn't go and say, well, this is clearly going to be Russia in 2020-whatever. They wouldn't say that. They would say, oh, this is the descendants of Noah and Reuben. All right, the theology. I'm going to tell you this story about two kingdoms. Let's start with Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. We've read this a lot in our series on Revelation. Why do the nations rage? The people plot in vain. 
The kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. But he who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Do you see how Gog and Magog took John's readers back to the very first time that all the nations gathered and plotted against God? Do you see that? That's why John makes the connection. When Satan is released and he gathers the nations from the four corners and he calls them Gog and Magog, he's saying it's just like the Tower of Babel. I love the Old Testament. Isn't that cool? Human history, if you think about it, is just this ongoing dramatic story of the conflict between two competing kingdoms, Gog and Magog and the kingdom of God. The desire to gather nations against God has been the hope and legacy of every empire for 4,000 years. Before Christ came, the kingdoms of Gog and Magog, controlled by evil, spread throughout the earth, populating it, building their legacy. Ultimately, all their kings and the spiritual forces behind them, the beasts, we've talked about this, they dominated every country and every group of people. The first empire to accomplish this was the Babylonian Empire, who forced the nation of Israel into exile and captivity. This is why when Daniel said, when I saw this prophecy of this great empire, Daniel troubled me in my spirit. He was heartbroken. He was sad. He was discouraged. This is why this vision for Daniel was so heartbreaking. He knew who they were, descendants of Noah. He says, you mean... The descendants of Noah are going to be who take us into captivity and exile. It's why Babylon became such a traumatic era in Hebrew history and culture. It is why throughout Revelation, as I've taught you, every time that John refers to the evil nations of the world, what does he call them? Babylon. Babylon is all those, Gog and Magog, all those who want to own their own kingdom. It's Ham, it's Reuben, it's Japheth. They would rather be a part of their world than God's kingdom. Back to verse 8 in our passage today. Do you remember this? Their number is like the sands of the sea. That does sound familiar, right? Does Does that happen somewhere else in Scripture? It should sound familiar. It's actually a very sad prophecy about many who are born part of Israel, but they come against God and his kingdom and they face God's judgment. From Hosea chapter 1, verse 10, look at this passage. Yet the number of the children of Israel, so we know who they are, shall be like the sand of the sea, even in the place where it was told to them, you are not my people. Wait a minute, they're related to Jacob or Israel, but they're not God's people? Correct. It's a sad prophecy about many born part of Israel will come against the kingdom of God and face God's judgment. Sadly, even though these nations come from a godly heritage, they became a part of kingdoms controlled by the dragon. Matter of fact, Paul laments this as well. Just like Daniel did and just like John does, Paul laments this in Romans. Look what he says. For not all who are descendants from Israel, Jacob, belong to Israel. This means it's not the children of the flesh who are called the children of God, but the children of the promise. Do you see this theological thread all throughout here? But meanwhile, 
While Gog and Magog are spreading and controlling the nations, God had his own plan for the legacy that he was building for his kingdom. At the time that Gog and Magog are are growing and expanding and dominating nations and consolidating power, God had one job. He was just preserving and protecting his remnant. As the nations raged, he was preserving one family to become the line of Jesus, our Messiah and our Deliverer and our King. It is the story throughout the Old Testament of Abel and Seth and Shem and Joseph and Jacob and David and the kingdom of Judah. All of these preserved while Gog and Magog raged. But then Jesus comes and he reverses all of that. And Satan and his kingdoms, and we talked about this last week, Satan and his kingdoms are no longer in expansion mode. They are bound and we, the kingdom of God, take over. And when Jesus restrains the kingdom of darkness, they now are the ones trying to preserve and control power and keep their legacy intact. Where else are they going to go? From that moment on, from that moment when Jesus came, Gog and Magog becomes a metaphor for this pathetic, ridiculous cycle, which is one nation swapping power and authority with another. One party winning an election, another one losing. Same thing over and over. What a pointless thing. You know, sometimes we as humans get all wrapped up in who's winning and who's losing. Newsflash, they're all losing. (laughs) But meanwhile... God is unleashing the power and authority of his kingdom, liberating his elect from the nations of Gog and Magog with the gospel. And after the millennium, when God is done building his kingdom, Satan is released for a short time to gather the trivial parts of what is left of his legacy. And he will try one last time what he tried at Babylon, And the Tower of Babel, he'll try again what he tried with the kingdom empire of Persia. He'll try again what he tried with the empire of Greece and and Rome and the United Nations and anything else you can think of. All attempts to replace God's kingdom with his own. And this last and final gathering will also be, sadly for him, his most pathetic failure. And it's over in an instant. Gone. His legacy. Poof. So I know what you're thinking. Why doesn't God just do it now? (laughs) We're ready. Hello. Remember the martyrs under the altar saying, God, how long before you avenge us? Why does God go through all this trouble? Why wait? Why not just let Satan go ahead and gather his pathetic, doomed kingdom now and be done with him already? Well, I'll tell you, here's why. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, but is patient toward you, O child of God, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. He isn't slow. He isn't forgetful. He doesn't need a Google reminder. He's not wasting time. His delay is actually a display of tremendous grace and love and mercy for all of us, his chosen redeemed. 
The ones he knew and loved, the scripture teaches us, before the foundation of the world. And he's patiently waiting out this foolishness of Gog and Magog until all of his elect, he says, all of the Father has given to me will come to me. He's waiting till all of his elect hear his call to come out of Gog and Magog, come out of the nations. He is calling us. He's liberating us from the burden of this foolish pursuit of gathering with Gog and Magog and trying our best to build some sort of earthly legacy that will one day just go up in smoke. That's good theology. Here's the personal section. What are we supposed to do with this today? Who do you gather with? That's a mean question, Pastor Joe. Why would you ask me that? This was the sermon preview this week. Although citizens, although, although we are citizens of the kingdom of God, although citizens of the kingdom of God might live within earthly kingdoms, we don't seek dual citizenship. Or at least we shouldn't. Gog and Magog are not specific nations on a map. They are a metaphor for every kingdom of this world controlled by the beast. Gog and Magog isn't a representation of specific nations, but the spiritual condition of every nation in world history. Gog and Magog is a metaphor for all who love the kingdoms of this world more than they love the kingdom of God. Gog and Magog is a metaphor for every gathering by the enemy throughout history against God's people, both big and small. Gog and Magog is a metaphor for the real ongoing spiritual battle that we wage each day and how it will ultimately end. Gog and Magog is a metaphor for how the powers of darkness will never prevail over the power of the King of Kings. Look what John, the author of Revelation, said in his gospel. He was talking about what Jesus said. Whoops, I missed that one. This is an important one. Yeah, I want to, let, let me read this verse to you, because this sets up the next one. You are not of this world, but I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. That's not surprising, right? And then look what he says next. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also ought to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Can I ask you a question? How in the world are you going to love other followers of Jesus if you don't constantly gather with them? Isn't that a good question? I got an answer for you. You cannot. But followers of Jesus, we should be making the kingdom of God our first love. By the way, do you remember way back in Revelation chapter 2, verse 4, Maybe you don't remember specifically the passage, but you might remember this phrase. Remember what Jesus said in his letter to the church in Ephesus? What did he say to them? You have abandoned the love you had at first. The people in Ephesus, if you remember that sermon way back in the beginning, they had stopped gathering with God's people. They were gathering with Gog and Magog. Question for you, follower of Jesus. Has your love and loyalty for the kingdom and, his, and the king been a little wobbly lately? If our loyalty to or our hope in any nation or system or politician or political party 
is stronger than your loyalty to or hope in the kingdom of God, then you cannot truly call yourself someone who follows the Lamb wherever He goes because you're only following Him where you want Him to go. We are only following, if we do this, we are only following when it suits our earthly hopes of our own little tiny kingdom we're trying to build for ourselves. Just like the descendants of Noah, Ham, Japheth, and Jacob's son, Reuben. Look, God has shown you waiting, putting up with the ridiculous foolishness of Gog and Magog. He's patient. He's not slow to wrath. He's patient. God has shown you tremendous loving patience by delivering you, delivering you from the world. So why would you be tempted to go back and gather with Gog and Magog again? Why? Where does your heart draw you each day, church? Do you gather with the world? Are you more enticed by an earthly legacy? Or do you have this unexplainable, overriding, supernatural desire to gather with God's people, to be loyal to his people and his kingdom first? Followers of Jesus can't be deceived by the promises of darkness. Do you know why? Because we know the promises of Jesus are way better. Followers of Jesus are liberated from the pathetic Gog and Magog obsession of gathering with the nations of this world. Followers of Jesus will desire to gather with God's people more than they are tempted to gather with the world. And listen carefully. Followers of Jesus don't play chicken with Gog and Magog. Gathering with the nations to enjoy their temptations as long as we can, until the time to get away just in time. That's not what followers of Jesus do. I want to see you pick up this connection between them being gathered from the four corners of the earth by Satan, Gog and Magog, and the Great Commission. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, Gog and Magog baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now look, this idea of separating from the world and gathering with God's people, it doesn't mean we live in this world as arrogant, religious, self-righteous zealots, as isolationists, cut off from all the nations. That's not what we're supposed to do. After all, The only reason you are not gathering with Gog and Magog this morning and you're gathering with God's people, the only reason you are among the redeemed is because God patiently waited for you to hear the gospel. Do you remember that day? Look, this doesn't mean we try to make this nation, the one we live in, or our world what we dream it could be. That is not our obsession. It doesn't mean we don't try to make it better when it comes to the gospel and the kingdom of God. But we do not have a dream that includes a great America. We have a dream that includes a great kingdom of God. We understand that's what Gog and Magog do. We are different. We understand it's about serving God in the world, keeping our allegiance and our loyalty to what he commands us to do. Now, one day, Satan will be released to gather Gog and Magog from the four corners of the earth. Until then, we get to run the place spiritually. And while Satan is bound, 
We, the redeemed, are given power, what we talked about last week, and authority to go to those same four corners with what? The gospel. You see that? And God patiently waits as we, his kingdom of priests, take the gospel to the ends of the earth into the nations of Gog and Magog. We engage with Gog and Magog because that's where the Great Commission tells us to go to all the nations. We have been called and given spiritual authority to live in this world with the three things that a royal priest should have. You guys know them? Some of you have been around me for a while. Proclamation, integrity, and industry. God's elect in the nations of Gog and Magog are waiting there for us to bring the gospel that has the power to save and liberate them just as it did you and I. And proclaiming the gospel, gathering God's people without being enticed to gather with Gog and Magog is really a supernatural miracle, is it not? To go into the world be, but not be of the world. We the church don't gather for any of the kingdoms in this world. We gather for a great legacy, a real legacy, the kingdom of God. Church, this is why followers of Jesus will never, and you know this is true, you will never feel at home or be satisfied in any political party or earthly country. You'll always want something more because you know there is something more. We know that their promise of prosperity and legacy and hope is an empty, feckless one. Instead, we gather with our king and his people. We know their promise of prosperity and legacy will never come true. So we gather with our king and his kingdom as often as we can instead. Heavenly Jesus, please continue to liberate us from this pathetic cycle of trying to gather with Gog and Magog. We want nothing to do with that. Lord, we confess to you that many times, though, there are very enticing promises. But we know that your, your gospel has the power to save and transform and redeem and liberate us from that. Lord, thank you for calling us out of the nations of Gog and Magog, out of darkness, into light. Lord, we're so thankful that the nation of God is not based upon blood, but upon promise. Lord, may this message in Revelation 20 inspire even greater loyalty and passion and commitment. Help us to love one another even more relentlessly than we do. Because it is an evidence that we have been called out of Gog and Magog into your kingdom. We thank you for this in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen. Amen. Have a great week, guys.